So in Hebrews 10, verse 1, For the law having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Speaking of the Day of Atonement. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. So Lord, please anoint the word. Break it fresh for us. Feed us, Lord, as we know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I pray your anointing, Lord, on our hearts and minds to receive, and then, Lord, that you would draw us into some good fellowship around the word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Hebrews, as you know if you've been coming, profoundly argues the absolute superiority of Jesus Christ. And so there are arguments and warnings throughout the book. The superior son of God, he's the superior high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is is the superior mediator of the new covenant. He is the superior sacrifice and servant that replaces the sacrifices and services. So tonight as we venture into Hebrews 10, in this chapter, we come to the beginning of the end. We're going to be going into chapter 11. So it's the beginning of the end of the author's arguments and, and a final warning taking us into chapters uh, 11, 12, and 13. Next week, many of you, some of you know Pastor Rob Dingman. He is Calvary Chapel in Twickenham, England. He's going to be in town, so I asked him if he would bring to us. I know that he loves the book of Hebrews. So next week, he's going to be taking us. If you're taking notes, want to write this down, you might read and think through some of this. Next week, Hebrews 10, 5 through 10. Uh, look at verse 5. Therefore... <clears throat> When he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. So Rob's going to talk to us from verses 5 through 10. The following week, Lowell will be taking us into Hebrews 10, 11 through 18. Look at verse 11. And every high priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never, again, here's the whole idea of tonight, and we'll continue through, can never take away sins. But this man, amen, you got to love that but. And then for two Wednesdays after that, so we have four to go before we get into Hebrews 11. The two Wednesdays, Paul and then Greg will, by way of the author's arguments and final warning in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 39, really introduces us now into the 11th chapter. Look at verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brethren... Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And then look at verse 38. Now, the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And so, uh, Greg, I'm sure, is going to have much to to share with us in these passages, as will Paul, Lowell, and and, uh, Ra. But look at verse, now chapter 11 and verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, 
the evidence of things not seen. Verse 3, by faith. And 19 times we read, by faith, by faith, by faith. See, the whole of Hebrews is pulling us into this, pulling us along, and then anchoring us into this whole idea of the walk of faith. So we, what is faith? Well, it says, first of all, by faith we understand. Can I hear an amen? Can I hear a better amen? By faith we understand. There are things that we see now. See, some people would say, well, the Christian faith is a blind faith. No, it's not. The Christian faith opens our eyes because now we see God. And to see God is to have a, a, a perspective on life that's quite different than anything anyone else can see. We can see God. Praise the Lord. So by faith, number one, we understand. And then by faith, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Moses. Now, I find it a little awe in my heart today in the timing of the studies in Hebrews and the studies in Acts. Because in Hebrews 11 through 13, it's the testimony of what faith is. And then in Acts, we're going to begin a whole series now to finish that book out on the making of a testimony. Now, I didn't plan this, but the Holy Spirit knows. So on, on Sunday morning, we're going to be looking at the making of a testimony, knowing the cause, you know, keeping our conscience in the good place, which he talks about in Hebrews also. So this whole series on the making of a testimony is going to be dovetailed in the testimony of faith that we read in Hebrews. Isn't that fun? I love the word. I love, love when the Lord does that. Now, when Jesus gathered his disciples in that upper room and he gave them a whole new significance to their observance and understanding of the Passover meal. Remember that night and he was betrayed. They had that Passover meal, which they had, they had observed that for a long time as Jews. It had a meaning to them, a significance that looked back to the Passover and their deliverance from Egypt and all that whole uh, history that God gave them that observance to remind them. It says that he took, in Luke twenty two nineteen, 19, and Jesus took bread, he gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. And then he said this, do this in remembrance of me. What he did not say was do this in remembrance of your sin. He said do this in remembrance of your Savior. Now, brothers and sisters, that just struck me as so profound. Jesus said, my body is given. I'm going through what I'm going through. I'm going through it so that you don't have to remember your sin. Do this in remembrance of the Savior. And dear brother and sister in the Lord tonight, it is the essence of these deep and abiding truths that we're studying in Hebrews. That we have a Savior, a high priest, a mediator of a new covenant, the, the Son of God that has given to us an inheritance, a salvation. And as, the, as we're going to see tonight, and we'll see through Hebrews 10, what God said about what Jesus did is, I will remember their sins no more. Hey, if God wants to forget, I'm happy to forget right along with him. Can you hear an amen? amen. That's what the Bible declares. So look at verse uh, 10, verse 16. Well, verse 5, we read, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. This is my body given for you. We'll get that next week. In chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, notice what it says. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. 
I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. I, I find it interesting. Then he adds. It's as though God's saying, this is what I'm going to do, but I want you to know something else. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. I know I'm overlapping a little bit. I hope that you'll forgive me for that, Greg and Paul. But I think foundationally, just to get a scope of chapter 10, what it's taking us now into is the testimony of faith. What faith is. Look at Hebrews 8. Look back a little bit. Hebrews 8, 12. Same thing. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will what? Remember no more. It's as though God's saying, no more. No more. It's all new. With these, the prophets agree. Isaiah said this in chapter 43, verse 25, if you're taking notes. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. With this, the prophet Jeremiah agrees. He begins in verse 34 of chapter 31, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I'll remember no more. Love it. So as we have this, these ongoing contrasts in the book of Hebrews, I call them glaring, glorious contrasts. As you look at the old and new, we find this in chapter 10 tonight in verse 3. Notice what it says there. But in those sacrifices there, there's a reminder of sins every year where God says, I will not remember their sins. You have this contrast. In the old covenant, the old sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin where God says in the new covenant, he will remember them no more. So you have these, these contrasts. Reminder of sins, Old covenant, remember sin no more, new covenant. The remaining of sin's problem in the old, the remission of sin and its power. Up-to-date forgiveness. In other words, in the old covenant, it was daily. You have to have the up-to-date forgiveness. Hey, in the new covenant, there's forgiveness forever, once for all. In the old covenant, there's sin conscious, yes, sin covered, in the new covenant, there is sin cleansed. And by the way, the cleansing of sin is not the, the atonement. It's the result of what Jesus accomplished. It is removed. It's cleansed. It's washed away. In the old covenant, there's a postponement of judgment. In the new covenant, there is permanent pardon. Can I hear an amen? Permanent pardon in the courts of God. In the Old Covenant, as we look tonight, there's a shadow. It's a shadow of things. In the New Covenant, it's the substance. In the Old, there's the image. We'll look at that again tonight. In the New Covenant, it's the real deal. In the New, Old Covenant, temporary. New Covenant, permanent. In the Old Covenant, there's an inherent weakness, the weakness of our flesh. In the New Covenant, there is the intrinsic strength because it's God who did it. And God who accomplished it, and God who's promised it, and God who cannot lie will certainly do what he's promised. Now, when a person's sin is set in the light of the countenance of God, that person is altogether unpardonable. 
When I stand in the light of the countenance of a holy God, my sin, just by myself, is unpardonable. The natural tendency of guilt is to somehow find a way to atone for my sin apart from needing help. I can do that. Brothers and sisters, as you know, this is impossible. We can't climb high enough. We can't swim long enough. We can't jump far enough to bridge the gap of what sin caused in a relationship with a holy God. And if we transgress in one point, we are guilty of all. The soul that sins shall surely die. And so what happens? We have this tendency as guilty human beings to return to our own little sacrificial systems. It may not be get the goats and and lambs going. It may not build a little tabernacle. But what do we do in our minds, in our relationship with God? Well, I should have prayed more this morning. I should have read my Bible a little more. I should have helped. I should have done. And it, it, it speaks of a guilt that creeps in when we know that we could be doing more, we could be living better, and all those things. And God's saying, hey, don't come to me with that. Come to me with Jesus. Know that my relationship with you, and you're doing differently, you're growing, you're changing, is a result of having been saved and ushered into this relationship with me, God would say. That's based upon better promises, a better covenant, a great high priest. Come to me and let's work from that foundation. Now notice what he says, verse 1. For the law. Now, the law is the whole of the sacrifices and services that, listen, were ordained by God. These things came from God. The law, God's moral law, knows nothing of forgiveness. It knows nothing of pardon. The law says, do this and you shall live. Don't do this, disobey this, and you shall die. Now, the Bible says we've all fallen short of the glory of God. No one can say before God, I've lived a perfect life. In fact, only one human being could ever say that, and that is the one who died for our sin. The law brings punishment. It brings a hopeless, terrible dismay that is used by the devil to drive us to despair. It's interesting. When the devil tempted Adam, it was, hey, has not God said? Trying to tempt him, which Eve, into sinning against God. But has not God said, as though what God said is good. And then the minute man sinned, then the devil comes along and says, now this is what God said, you're dead. And so the Bible says that he holds captive, bondage those through fear of death. And the devil comes and condemns us through the law. Listen to what Spurgeon says. I love this. He said, man perce- talking of the law, man perceives, what man perceives in the law is a knife that cuts the hand that handles it. Or a sword that kills the man that fights with it. In other words, you pick up the law to use it and you realize it's going to be used on you at the same time. That's why Jesus said, hey, if you're looking at someone, realize that you're guilty too. In other words, you're looking at someone, you've got a beam in your own eye, and you're looking at the speck in their eye. So he says, it's a knife that cuts the hand that handles it. It's a sword that kills the man that fights with it. In other words, the purpose of the law was to bring man to an acknowledgement that indeed he is guilty before a holy God. 
that there is a problem called sin. Some questions I'd like to ponder for a moment tonight. If God were not a God who pardons, would he have treated Adam and Eve as he did when they sinned against him? If God were not a God who forgives, would he have visited them after sinning and said, Adam, where are you? If, God, if there were no way of pardoning transgressors, why would God have instituted the ceremonial law? You see, he ordained that. Why burnt offerings? Why the shedding of blood? Why peace offerings? Why the priesthood and sacrifice if mercy were not intended by a merciful God? Why the scapegoat? Why the burning of offerings outside the gate? Why all that? Why did God give us that? Why did he say to Adam in the garden there, the, the, women's, the, the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head? Why did God do that? You see, you realize right from the beginning, God is communicating he's merciful and gracious and wanting to pardon and wanting to remember sin no more. If God were not a God who forgives, why would he tell, command men everywhere to repent? If God were not a God who pardons, then why the prayers and why the praise of his people are ever recorded in the books of the Bible? Certainly the condemned will not praise him. Certainly the wicked, although ultimately all things will praise him. And by, finally, if God were not a God who pardons, why the cross? Why the cross? If it doesn't matter how we live, then why did Jesus have to die? If it's okay to do things that the Bible, God community says, are sinful, but people today all over the place, in the church and outside the church, are taking and making their own recipes their own definitions of what God has declared and communicated to us. But God's communicated those things. He's still a merciful, gracious God who wants to pardon. He communicates those things so that we'll understand and know the freedom that comes from our sins being remembered no more. You see, you can't escape it. We can't escape it. And so if God were not a God who pardons, then why the cross? Why did Jesus even have to go through that? We get the answer from the, from the lips of our own Savior. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will be done. Had it been possible for us to be, our sins to be removed and remembered no more in any other direction, any other way, then Jesus would not have had to die on the cross for you and for me. Verse 1 again, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things. That very image is the word ikian. And William Newell writes this, quote, A good statue or photograph reveals features and facts accurately. So the image he looks at as a statue or a photograph that reveals features and facts accurately. Now the other thing he says is having a shadow. A shadow cannot do that. A tree casts its shadow on the ground. You see its general shape. But you cannot tell the kind of tree or discern foil, fo foliage, <laughs> blossom, or fruit. I thought that was such, a, such an insight. So he says, having a shadow of the good things. 
So the shadow is a hazy outline, the sketch. It might be that preliminary outline that then the artist takes and colors. So you get, you get the idea. It's, it's not the substance. The substance is what casts the shadow. And that substance is Christ, Colossians tells us. So the shadow is a hazy outline, the sketch before the picture. So having a shadow of good things to come. So the law was there as a sketch, if you will. Not filled in. You couldn't really tell from that at that time until it began to be, as God begins to continue to reveal the picture, if you will. Filled in when Jesus came. It's not the very image of the things. It's not that clear where you can look at it and say, oh. See, the image is the finished portrait. Now, there again. People might look at the image. They might look and know that's what it says, but don't know it as a living relationship with God. The law pointed forward to something well worthwhile. Do you ever watch an artist when they sketch the picture? For me, you're looking at it, you're going, now what's he going to do with that? A couple lines, you know. Dan, is Dan like that, Rosie? A couple lines here and there. And, and God gave that sketch, that shadow, in all the law, but the substance, the actual substance of what, the, you know, you can't live in the shadow of your house. You move into the house. And thus it is the same. People are trying to live under the law and experience what the law cannot give them in life. Can't do it. You can't have a living relationship with God, part of his family, under the, by coming to him by the law. But what the law will do is it'll kill you. It'll condemn you, but it can't help you. The help of the law is in pointing us, pointing us, pointing us. So you see that. You see the sketch. You go, what, what does that mean? What's that going to be? Jesus comes along and all of a sudden, that's what God was doing for hundreds of years in sketching and sketching and sketching to send Christ. And if there is no Jesus, there's no shadow. There's no substance. A shadow gives no details. A shadow is unsubstantial in, 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 as opposed to the real thing, which is Christ. The shadow is not the real thing. It's only the result of having the real thing there. And that's what Jesus did. So 1B says... Having a shadow of good things to come, not the very image of the things. Notice verse 1 again. Can never. Now that's a pretty definite term, wouldn't you say? Can never with these same sacrifices. Which they offer continually year by year. Make those who approach perfect. So if you want to continue along in those same sacrifices. It can't do it. They can't accomplish what only Christ could. What was impossible for the law. And all of its sacrifices, all of its services, continue year by year. In other words, it didn't matter how many or how long they did it, how long it continued, which by the way, today it's not continued. It's been not happening for 2,000 years. There hasn't been a temple. There haven't been sacrifices. We'll talk about that in a moment. But no matter how many they offer, no matter how long, these things can never bring about. What's the problem? Closure with sin problem. There couldn't be 
It is finished. No more. Through that sacrificial system. Now the perfect doesn't mean sinless. It means, as we've looked at in Hebrews already, it means complete. It means having all the necessary things taken care of so that I can have access to God. It's to be in right standing before God, listen, in the language and tenses, permanently. Permanently. Perfect is used in a moral and spiritual sense of what's accomplished through the law, excuse me, through the new covenant, through Jesus Christ. You and I are sinners. I probably wouldn't say, can I say an amen? But brothers and sisters, we can say amen to that because if we're not saying amen to that, we're not realizing what God has accomplished for us and the need that we have. So we're all sinners. Can you hear an amen? Amen. And the law can do nothing for all of eternity but condemn us. It's all it can do. First, 2 Corinthians 3, 7, it's the ministry of death. It was, it was glorious, yes, because it's, it's a, there's no problem with the law itself. The problem is us. And so it ministers death. It tells us we're guilty. Look at verse 11. Every high priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can what? There it is again. Can never take away sins. So I hope as we're look, working through this and thinking through these things, that we'll be able to receive from the Lord some insight into how it is that we gravitate toward our own efforts and energies and services and sacrifices to somehow attain a a greater intimacy with God. I can tell you growing up, I got saved when I was 10, but even before that, I remember having a real desire to know the Lord. I got saved at 10. I wanted to know God, walk with Him. And I tried. I remember when I was a little boy, 10 or 11, when I prayed, I'd close my eyes and I'd, I'd roll my eyes as far up as in my head as I could. And that was sort of, for some reason, I thought that this is going to get me closer to God. And they're just, <laughs> is that weird? I, I remember that. I mean, that, I, when, I, when I prayed, I would do that. Now, here's what I lacked. I lacked what we're doing tonight. I lack the word of God. I'm convinced that someone who is born again and begins to sit under the teaching of the word of God will hunger for the word of God like they never have. On the other side, people who are saved and never get the diet of the word of God don't know what they're missing. They know they're longing for something, so what do they get? They get religion. They get morality. They get a do this, do that, amp that up, amp that up, do this. And it, it really undermines the assurance of salvation, the freedom of salvation, the pardoning of salvation. Rather than drawing us to God, there's a barrier because I haven't given like I should have. I haven't read like I should have. I haven't served like I should have. And I say, Lord, help me in communicating these truths to you. Help those who are teaching the word and communicating these truths to us. It never starts with what I've done for God. The Bible always begins with what God has done for me. And the working out of my salvation is that, is that response to the initiator. The initiator is always God. Can I hear an amen on that one? Not religion. And so for then, verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered? The fact that they did not cease proves their ineffectiveness. 
They kept doing them, kept doing them. Today, the Jews are not offering sacrifices at the temple. Not because they understand the true substance of what the sacrifices and services are in Jesus. That's not why. They know in their minds that there is a need for atonement. They know that. They've been steeped in the scriptures. But instead of sacrifices and services now, because there is no temple, they have the add and subtract version of righteousness. They have the balance sheets. So at the end of the year, rather than once a year, sort of adding, going to the temple, the day of atonement, when the priest offered the sacrifices once a year, and that was all a reminder. So right now they, they, okay, what have I done this year, and what haven't they done? And they try and balance the sheets, but that can never be balanced. But we have ways of balancing our sin sheets, don't we? We have, we have ways of making us in the black when we're done, not the red. And that's what they do now. It's sort of a, a, a reckoning in their minds of good, bad, things they've done, things they haven't, and that's what they do. But you see, they missed, and they miss. I believe one day there's going to be a temple built again. I believe that their Messiah is coming back again. And when he does, they're going to ask him, what are the meaning of these wounds in your hands? He said, those are the wounds I received in the house of my friends. And there's going to be a mourning in Israel as they realize what they did to God's son. And there's going to be a great turning to their Messiah in the last days. Whoo! We're talking revival in Israel. It's going to be happening. One day they will see it. But now, Bible says, blindness in part has happened to them until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in in Romans. There's a blindness that God's allowed. And when the Jews finally in actual rejected that, God turned to the Gentiles. The gospel went to the Gentiles, as we're looking at Acts, through a Jewish man who hated Gentiles. God brought the gospel to them. An atonement that needs constant repetition does not really atone. A conscience which has to be cleansed and cleansed again has never really been truly cleansed. Verse 2 again. For the worshipers once purified would, not have, had, would have had no more consciousness of sins. It's the result of pardon that there's this, this uh, freedom from sin. The pardoned person is cleansed, all sin removed. No, the awareness of guilt, recognition of guilt has been settled in the courts of God. So from that, no fear. Doubt dissipates. The old sacrifices had the repetition, repetition, repetition. If a person is truly cured, that person no longer needs to take their medicine. Amen? But in those sacrifices, a reminder of sins every year, pointing to the day of atonement. So a strong contrast there's always a reminder of sin, and God says, I'll remember their sin no more. The Day of Atonement ceremonies reminded people year in and year out, and not only that, but week in and week out. And daily, when they sinned, there needed to be a sacrifice. So it maintained a consciousness of sin, not a cleansing. He either repents. You know, when, when, when a sinner remembers his sins... He either repents or persists in it. When God remembers sins, 
He either punishes or pardons. Those are the two options. And through Jesus Christ, he pardons. Verse 4, our final verse tonight. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The old sacrifices meant remembrance of sins, not the removal of sin. The sacrifices were not adequate because it was not a human being dying in the place. The blood of bulls and goats could not take them forward. It kept them in repetitive sacrifices and services. What was impossible by the law and all of its sacrifices and services. Again, in verse 11, every high priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. Jesus made it possible for all. He came to take away and establish. Look at verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. How often? Once for all. In John chapter 1 verse 29, what did John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God that what takes away the sin of the world. John 3, 5, you know that he, 1 John 3, 5, you know that Jesus was manifested to take away our sins. Jesus made it possible for all of us through the gospel preached to have our sins removed. It's no wonder that when the gospel's preached, the enemy comes along and he takes away the word that was preached, lest they should be saved. The one sacrifice of Jesus has made an end of sin. God will never again demand another victim. Isn't that great? Never. You, me, or anyone else. He'll never again demand it because it's the, the demand of his holiness has been satisfied. Another question we might ponder tonight. Can God who knows all things not remember? Can God forget? Does God, who knows everything in the eternal present, have a bad memory? Simply put, God is putting into our language how he sees sin now. So that we can understand that God's forgiveness is identical to our forgetting. It's not there any longer. Now, I can say many times, I wish I had a better memory. It just ain't there. You try and bring it, bring it up. Hey, God is not trying to recall our sins. We're not going to get in heaven all of a sudden, oh, you know what? I just remembered something. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, okay, you're out. He, and our memory is, is, might call it a recall. God's not going to recall us. He called us to salvation. God's forgiving and forgetting means that he's not going to ponder on it. He's not going to be meditating on it, which is all a part of our memory. That's where we think about things. We're pondering things like Mary pondered these things. We're trying to remember and thinking about things that went on. God's not doing that. He's in the eternal present. He knows all things. But the idea here is to us to understand that that's not how he's looking at sin anymore. He's not brooding over it. It's been taken care of. It's done. No more. Your sin and my sin because of what Jesus did. 
God's forgiving and forgetting means simply no more. So Jesus took that bread. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I was so moved by that today as I was just thinking through it. He did not say do this in remembrance of your sin. Do this in remembrance of your Savior. What a depth that brings to when we have community. We should have had it tonight. I didn't arrange it. That's what Jesus said. Would you mind reading with me a passage in Psalms? Go there. I'd like to close with this. In Psalm 103, verse 6. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Again, the thought there is what I began with. If God were not a God who who pardons, why would he do these things? He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. You can never, east and west never meet. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers we are dust. Let me, let me pray and then we'll, we'll share a little bit. Lord, thank you again just for your word and the truth and how by your Holy Spirit and being alive again by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit comparing spiritual things with spiritual and your word is alive. Lord, I thank you so much that you remember my sin no more. That Jesus, you came and a body was prepared to do your Father's will Offerings and sacrifice, you wouldest not, but a body you prepared for me. Lord, we get it. (laughs) We understand it. But Lord, I pray you'd penetrate deeper and deeper into this relationship that we want with you and desire after you. And Lord, draw us to yourself and may we know the, the greatness of our Savior and High Priest and Mediator, Jesus, please. We ask these things in your name. Amen.